0: I love how it just gets so quiet, everybody just stops talking. Well hey, good morning everybody, my name's Peter, Uh, if I haven't met you, and I'm sure glad that you guys are here with us and excited about what God has for us, excited kind of just what's going on in the church, excited about Christmas season, Um, so glad that you get to be part of what God's doing. If you're a first-time visitor or been here just a few times trying to find a church, we'd love to... Help you ever we can, um, and so there's some connection cards online, or you can grab one of us after the service. We try not to, we will not chase you to your car to stalk you down, um, but we sure do want to be helpful in any way we can. Couple of things, just housekeeping things about tonight. We have two different uh, things going on tonight. We have a congregational meeting at seven o'clock, and that's just the time of year. It's mostly all business, uh, but it's a chance to just celebrate, celebrate how God has been faithful to us through financial and just kind of how based on the trends of this past year, what we feel God would be leading us to do in the coming years. And we also are excited because there's a bunch of you. That have volunteered and will be part of all sorts of different teams next year. And so it's a chance for the members to approve those folks that the elders and other boards have put forward and just kind of celebrate that. So that's kind of what we'll be talking about at 7 o'clock tonight. So members will have a chance to affirm and vote on some of the things the elders are putting forward. But if you're not a member and you're interested in the finances of Calvary and the folks who will be jumping on to serve on teams and boards next year, then we'd invite you to come to that before that at 6 o'clock. Some of the different leadership teams are going to be having uh, some meetings. Not everybody who's on a leadership team will be involved, but for some leaders, some of the groups are going to be having a meeting before 6 o'clock. And so we're just excited. We're, We're in an interesting place. We're in a place where many churches throughout our country find themselves, where it's a time of recreation and it's a time to in many ways, stop trying to figure out how to be a church in a pandemic and prayerfully discern the church that God has you calling you to be coming out of a pandemic. And we're just really excited about that opportunity because there's a bunch of folks here who are excited, and we're just looking ahead to a vision that we're going to be introducing uh, to all of you, to everybody coming early January, just prayerfully thought through what is God calling us to do and how can we rally around that and how can we build and care for each other well but make sure we're not just focused on ourselves but people who don't know Jesus what does it look like to serve them and so it's a it's a good time it's a different time in many ways for lots of churches but we are very confident that God is at work and so grateful for a bunch of you that are jumping in to row the boat with us and his faithfulness and just this kind of sense of excitement that there is something ahead and we are going to link arms and press into it and we will watch when a group of people are obedient to what they sense God calling them to do and using their gifts, what might the God of the universe do through that group of people. So lots more about that, but an exciting time as we kind of find ourselves wrapping up a year and and looking ahead to a year, exciting time is Christmas, and we're in our Christmas series, and so uh, look forward to what we have today. I'm going to pray, and then we'll we'll jump into our text for the day. So Father, we do come again to you, and we are uh, thankful for how you work. We're thankful for all of us that you've gathered together to collectively sing and affirm truths about you. We're, we're thankful, Father, for the chance to open up your word. We know that you... Do not waste opportunities for each of us to hear from you. And so, again, we trust the Spirit. There's nothing that I can say to impact or to draw people to you. It's all the work of the Spirit. So, Father, I come expectantly and hopefully and excited about what you have for us this morning through your Word. And we want this to be a time to honor Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, one more little housekeeping thing. If you're interested in what we're going to be doing at Calvary in December... Uh, There's a document on the way out, a piece of paper, kind of an overview of the different calendar dates here. There's going to be some Sundays where it's one service, some Sundays when there's programming for kids and there's not. If all you want to do is sing Christmas carols till your lungs explode within you, then I would invite you to our Christmas Eve service where we will be singing Christmas carols. Hopefully your lungs will not explode within you, um, but we'll be singing Christmas carols, lighting some candles and have just some... uh, uh, short time of thoughts just about what this e- that evening is about and so there's two different services you can get that information we start january with one service and Uh, I think it's we as leaders think it's a great chance for all of our church we can fit um, people in here and we're seriously considering trying to gather us all together in one service instead of two just so that the whole body can worship together and so we'll give you more information about that but if you want to know what's going on in Christmas grab that on the way out the door and what's going on today for Christmas is we are continuing our Christmas series which is entitled, and I always get this wrong, but it's called, Do You See What I See? Do You See What I See? It's based on the Christmas carol that is called, Do You Hear What I Hear? Do You Hear What I Hear? And we are taking four weeks together to look at different perspectives, different insights of different characters who were in the Christmas story, and what did they see? What was their viewpoint? What, what did they glean from it? What perspective did they have? And then what insights can we gain from that, right? So like I said, this title of this series, Do You See What I See, is based on that song, Do You Hear What I Hear? And there is this line in this carol, this kind of gets you get on towards the end of the carol. There is this verse in the carol that says these words, said the king to the people everywhere. Oh, I won't. Preach it, sister. (laughs) I'm telling you, I use self-control up here. I know some of you are shocked that I do. I really do. But it is so hard for me not to sing it. I told the first service, I'm going to have a third service today. It's going to be the one o'clock service. It's just going to be me with my mic with a monitor, and I'm going to sing the daggum song. And it's going to be remarkable. But... The song that you've heard, some of you, the Christmas carol, Do You uh, See What I See, Is or Do You Hear What I Hear, said the king to the people everywhere, listen to what I say. Oh, Oh, you're good. All right, pray for peace, people everywhere, right? Then it goes, listen to what I say, listen to what I say. And then, the child, the child, sleeping in the night, he will bring us goodness and light. He will bring us goodness, don't do it, Peter, and light. I can hear Bing Crosby in the recesses of my mind singing this song. And this last verse has to deal with this perspective in this carol of the king in the carol is is saying something to the people, and he's got this particular perspective on this baby, right? The child, and his perspective is: hey, this baby in the carol, this baby's a great thing, right? The child, the child sleeping in the night. He will bring us goodness and light in the Christmas carol on which this Christmas series is based. The king, in this carol, sees this baby as something to celebrate, as something that's meaningful, as something that's good, as something that he's rallying around. But the question is, for the king, political leader, in the original true Christmas story, did he have this same perspective? Right. This king's perspective is, hey, this baby is a great thing. I'm excited about this baby. The question is, what was the perspective of the king... In the original Christmas story, when he saw the baby, when he saw the baby or heard about the Jesus who was born, what did he think about it? What was his view on that? That's what we're gonna be spending most of our time talking about today. Our text, if you have a Bible, it's gonna be in Matthew chapter two. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter two throughout uh, most of the sermon. <clears throat> so the first question is okay, who was the political leader at this time? Who was the ruler at this time? And Matthew, in the first verse of chapter 2, sets that up, and here's what he tells us. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, so in the true Christmas story, the king was not some random dude that Bing Crosby or Andy Williams is singing about, but the king was a guy named Herod. And if we're going to think about what was the perspective of this king, it's worth spending a little bit of time, a few minutes, front-ending some things that we could know about this king. This king, this Herod, some of you may have heard of that in your history classes, was kind of the first Herod. There were a bunch of other Herods, but this guy was Herod I. He was also known as Herod the Great. We have a selfie, not really, but we have a picture of what this dude looked like. It gets creepier throughout the time I'm talking because you start to really be bothered by the fact he doesn't have any eyes. Like, But but this is a bust that was made based on drawings, based on understandings of what Herod the Great looked like. And here's a little bit of backstory about how Herod got to power, and then we'll talk a little bit about who he was and jump back in the text. But this dude's daddy uh, was a big supporter of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was like the massive emperor, the big dog in Rome, and his daddy Uh, supported Julius Caesar and actually supported Julius Caesar at the risk of his life. And so as a thank you, what Julius Caesar did was he gave to his dad, Herod's dad, he put him in control, kind of like a governor, if you will, of an area of the Roman Empire known as Judea. Judea was the area throughout the Old Testament part of the area in which the Jews live. It is now pretty heavily centered, the hub of where the Jewish people live. Uh, it's where Jerusalem is, it's where the temple is, and his dad gets to be the governor of that region. Being a good dad, he thinks to himself, I'm going to bring my boy into the family business, and so when our friend Herod, without the eyes, is about 25 years old, he gets a job kind of like being a mayor of a, of, a, of a smaller area in that Judean country. When his dad dies, uh, everybody votes and they promote Herod to now Herod, Herod the Great, Herod the 1, Herod in the Christmas story takes over as the governor of this area of Judea. Herod interestingly was not a Jew. Herod is a family line, he's in kind of this clan who are known as the Edomites. The Edomites Some of you are thinking, what is an Edomite? I do not want it around my Christmas tree eating the bark, right? Do I have to call a, uh, you know, terminex or something? But others of you may in the back recess of your mind, if you were here with us through our uh, narrative series when we went through the Old Testament you might remember that there were two brothers named Jacob and Esau, two dudes named Jacob and Esau, and Jacob tricked Esau out of the birthright, out of the promises. And so there were these brothers who started early on in this power struggle. The descendants of Jacob became what we know as the Jewish people, and the line that descended out of Esau were the group of people referred to as the Edomites. And throughout history... The Edomites and the Jews were in battle, were in fighting, were in conflict. Herod was a descendant of Esau with this track record of huge conflict with the Jewish people. Herod was a savvy guy and he knew that when he took over this large Jewish region he needed to kind of get some political capital. He needed to get some buy-in. And so what Herod did is he married uh, into a very prestigious, wealthy, politically connected Jewish family. He married a Jewish girl of a very politically connected Jewish family. And man, this was his way in to kind of gain, press the palms, gain the power, right? Gain the influence into the Jewish power structure at the time. Herod was a... Really interesting dude. He kind of was like a Jekyll and Hyde, because there were some amazing things that Herod did to try to help the Jewish people. And whether he did it largely get political bank, we don't know, but one of the things he did is he rebuilt the temple. At this time in Jerusalem, the temple had been destroyed and broken down. and so what this guy was like, he's like, "Man, why don't I make my people happy? Let's get this temple rebuilt. Maybe they'll like me. I'll get some political swag from it." He revived a city called Samaria. You've heard of the Good Samaritan. Uh, that that took place around Samaria. He built this huge fortress called Masada as a kind of this outpost for the Jewish people. There were two different times in the Jewish people's history during his reign that he lowered taxes for them. Right. That sounds good to me, but enough about that. He lowered taxes for them. And then there was this famine that came into Jerusalem. And what Herod did was he took his own money, his own wealth, and he bought food for poor Jewish people in Jerusalem. In a lot of ways, Herod did some things that were good for the Jewish people. But on the other hand, there was this dark side to Herod. And he was literally uh, just this brutal, probably somewhat crazy, guy. Herod was absolutely paranoid and insecure about somebody else taking his throne. Herod would go to bed at night freaking out about who's going to try to wage this coup against me. Herod would wake up in the morning concerned that there were all these people with his ambitions to take his throne from him. He, he was so afraid that somebody was going to grab his throne that he murdered his wife, her brother, his mother-in-law, and several of his own sons because he thought that his wife, her brother, his mother-in-law, and his own sons, he thought, were trying to conspire to take away the throne. And so he murdered them. At the beginning of the Christmas story, this paranoid king has been ruling for many years, and, and he's kind of at the tail end of his rule. There's not a whole lot of time left for Herod to be in charge And what a lot of historians think, they look at the events in this story, they look at some other things that other historical accounts tell us, and they just look at the choices this guy made, and they think that he was suffering from some mental illness that took his paranoia, and took his insecurity, and took his rage to a whole different level. So, what does this kind of paranoid, insecure, power-hungry king, what does he experience one day when he goes into the office? He cruises into his palace in Jerusalem, and there's a little bit of activity in the city, and so the story continues in the second part of verse 1 where we hear about some of that activity. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We're now several months after Jesus has been born. I know we're flipping a little bit in our chronology. We're several months after Jesus has been born, and these wise men come into town. These wise men were most likely astrologers from the area of Babylon. They were these people that would study the stars and try to get religious signs and symbolism from them, and these astrologers came into Jerusalem because something had happened in the sky that caught their attention. What were these guys doing, these astrologers from another country, doing and asking in Jerusalem, here's what they were doing, verse 2, saying... Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Here's what these astrologers were doing. This word saying means to like repeatedly ask something. So they were going all throughout Jerusalem and they would go to like fill up their gas tank and they'd be like, hey, do you guys know where this king has been born? They'd go to get a coffee. They'd be like, oh man, yeah, just a little bit of cream, a little bit of sugar. By the way, do you know where this king would be born? They're hopping to their Uber. Do you know where the king would be born? This is a Greek word that means this progressive ongoing action, right? Repeatedly asking, Where's the king? Where's the king? Where's the king? Some of you may have this happening in your own households right now, because maybe you have grandchildren or small children, and they have an idea about what they want for Christmas, and they're like the wise men, repeatedly asking, hey, don't you think we should get this present? There was a period of time when one member of my family wanted a Nintendo Switch, Mhm. And I mean this child was creative because for a period of time all that we kept hearing about was Nintendo Switches. "Hey mom, hey dad, I just switched off my bedroom light. Speaking of that, I really want a Nintendo Switch, right?" I mean, you know what that's like cuz some of your grandkids, some of your kids are repeatedly saying to you what they want for Christmas. These wise men were repeatedly asking, "Hey, where's the king? Where's the king?" where's the king? Now, the question is, would that have been a random thing? If somebody comes in to this room and starts asking, where's the king? Where's the new king? We'd be like, bro, you you need to lay off whatever you've been enjoying the past weekend, right? Because it would be odd in our culture for somebody to randomly come in and ask where the king is, the new king. But in this culture, this question about where this new king was, it was not a strange or weird or something out of the blue because within this culture, there was this, there was this current running through it that one day there was going to be a, a new king. For the Jewish people in that culture, there was this centuries-held belief that their political deliverer was going to come. They gave him the title of Messiah. But for the Jewish people, embedded in their culture... And their religion was this belief that one day this political leader, this king, was going to come, and they were looking for him. But it wasn't just the Jewish people, because it was also the Romans themselves. The Romans themselves within their own culture had this belief that, man, the Roman Empire is good, but we need to be careful Because one day there is going to be a king from another country who's going to come that's going to press up against this. It was a commonly held understanding in those cultures that there's a king coming. Here's what two different Roman historians write about the understanding, even among the Romans in this day, never mind the Jews, that there had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world another dude named Tacitus. That is a good name, by the way. When I come back in another life, I'm coming back as the gladiator named Tacitus. I don't really believe you come back in another life. You do not need to text me about my belief in the afterlife. I believe, do not believe that is true, okay, just for the record. <clears throat> Maybe I'll name a dog Tacitus. How's that? Here's what Tacitus wrote about this, that there was a firm persuasion That at this very time, the east was going to grow powerful and a ruler coming from Judea, a ruler coming from the area where these wise men had just shown up, where Herod was overseeing, a ruler coming from Judea was going to acquire a universal empire. The Jews were looking for a king to politically deliver them. The Romans themselves had this understanding that there was going to be a king who would give them who would cause that empire to crumble and have a more powerful, long-lasting empire, and Herod, this paranoid, insecure, power-hungry king who killed his family members because he was so worried about someone else taking the throne, was in the palace on that day, clearly would have had, within his own culture, this awareness that, man, there's this this inkling that there's going to be another king that's going to rise up one day, And he starts to catch wind that there's these three dudes or five dudes or however many dudes from another country, astrologers, cruising through the city, saying to everybody, hey, where's this new king been born? Hey, we know there was a new king born a few months ago. We want to come. What's going on? And so what does this paranoid, aging king do when he hears this word? Well, the text continues, and it says this in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, He was troubled. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is sitting on this political powder keg in the city. He's worried about his throne. And this word, troubled, right, it means like worried, anxious. All of Jerusalem's worried, too, because they're like, oh my goodness, what is this paranoid guy going to do now that he thinks there's a new king in town? What's going to happen? So, what does he do next? This paranoid king understands that there's a new king born. Those astrologers have told him that. Look at the next thing that he does in verse four. So Herod the king had heard this; he was troubled all Jerusalem. And then verse four: and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod went out, and he got the Jewish religious leaders of that time, who were positioned in the Jerusalem. It'd be like if something here in Fairfield County happens, and You know, Lamont goes out and gets every evangelical pastor in Fairfield County and gathers them together. Herod got all of the Jewish religious leaders together. And he says, okay, guys, I want to press into something with you, right? He assembles them together and he says, inquire to them, where is the Christ to be born? Jewish leaders, I know that in your culture there's this prophecy that one day the king's going to come. You need to help me out. You need to tell me where is that guy supposed to be born. I need to know where he was supposed to be born. And so they answer him. These religious leaders respond to him, and they tell him in verse 5 and 6, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They, they roll into the palace and are like, Herod, the prophecy is that this king that we the Jewish people are waiting for is supposed to be in Bethlehem. And, and then the narrative continues. We, we move past them to what Herod does next. Herod is now going to leverage these wise men as spies. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, verse 7, and ascertained from them what the time the star had appeared. He, he wants to know, okay, how old is this baby? How many months ago did you see this? How many years ago did you see this? How old is my, the guy that may raise this coup against me? And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, hey, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We know from Herod's past history. <clears throat> we know from other places in the text and the, what we'll see later in the story Herod doesn't want to worship the king. Herod has no desire to worship this baby. I mean, Herod wants to deal with a baby. Herod wants to identify where he is and make sure that this baby never has a chance of politically threatening his power. And so what happens is the story continues. So we see what the wise men do, the astrologers do in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the wise men come and they see Jesus and they worship Jesus. Then there's this dream that, hey, <clears throat> you guys don't need to go back to Herod. So they, they, they just take off town another way. Then Matthew shifts and gives us this little momentary glance at what's going on in Jesus' household. He's, he's a toddler now, right? What, what's going on with Jesus and Mary and Joseph? Now when they had departed verse 13. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by prophet out of Egypt I called my son. The wise men come and they worship Jesus. Then they head out of town a different way. Joseph and Mary have this dream that, hey, the king is going to try to wipe out Jesus. So they flee in the middle of the night. We don't know how they do it. We don't know the plan. But they cross the border. They get over the border. They get into Egypt. Then word comes back to Herod that, oh, by the way, Herod. Those astrologers, they're not coming back to you, dude. They're like on a midnight train to Georgia. I don't know where they are, but they are gone, okay? And Herod realizes that his source of information about the specific location of the child has hightailed it out of town. What does he do then? 16, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. This word furious, it is like unhinged. He is filled with this rage, interestingly, the tense of this suggests that actually the rage and the anger is now taking over Herod, right? Herod is, being contro- Herod is not in control of his rage, but his rage and his hate and his anger, when he looks out, all he can see is red. He has lost his mind. This word is like this blind fury that this paranoid, insecure king flies into. And out of that blind fury, he makes a decision. And we read what that decision is next. And so Herod, when he saw it be tricked, he became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. When they told him when they had seen the star, he did some math and he figured like, okay, so the math shows me that this baby, this potential king is going to be two years old or younger. And so Herod says, I'm going to do what I did to my Wife, I'm going to do what I did to my brother-in-law. I'm going to do what I did to my mother-in-law. I'm going to do what I did to my own sons. And I'm going to take this potential threat out of the game. And so Herod issues this order that was played out to kill all the two-year-old males in the city of Bethlehem. Now, when I've heard that before, I'm thinking like, man, there are thousands of babies who are being slaughtered. That's probably not the case. Bethlehem was a small little village, And most historians have thought that there's probably about 20 or so male toddlers that would have fallen into this demographic. So we're not talking thousands and thousands, but we're talking about about 20 male children were killed in Bethlehem because Herod thought they were a threat, which is 20 male children, too many, who were killed. How did Herod see baby Jesus, the baby who was born. What was Herod's perspective when he saw Jesus? It wasn't what the king in the song was sung about. This is what Herod saw. Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his life and his power. Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his life and to his power. And, and, here's the reality today, that there are all sorts of people this year who are going to hear the Christmas story. There there are all sorts of people this year who maybe are going to read the Christmas story with their family on Christmas Eve or read it on Christmas morning. There are all sorts of people this year who are going to set up a manger somewhere in their house, but yet there's all sorts of people this year who, when they see Jesus, are going to have the same perspective that Herod had, which is they will see Jesus as a threat to their life and their power. And and not an actual threat like, oh, Jesus is going to like chop off my head, but they want the power, they want the control, they want to be the one who calls the shots for their lives, they want to be in charge, and they don't want to submit to Jesus. See, lots of people in our culture, lots of people in churches, and maybe some people here. We're, we're good with this Jesus. This is a play school nativity set, plastic little happy smiling Jesus. Right? Well, man, everybody, lots of people are good with, with baby Jesus in the nativity scene. You know what you can do with this? You know what I can do with this? Man, I, I can move Jesus where I want him to be. Right? I'm the one that decides what Jesus does. If I want Jesus there, great. If I'm like, you know what, Jesus, let me give you a little more important view. Why don't you just come hang out here with me for a little bit? Great. If I get tired of Jesus hanging out there, I can move little bitty nativity scene Jesus wherever I want him to do. Many people in our culture, many people in churches, maybe even some of you here today, you're good with this Jesus because you have control over this Jesus. But man, you're not good with King Jesus. Because King Jesus demands to have control over you. And maybe this morning, man, you you don't want somebody else calling the shots. You, You don't want what this book says and what Jesus asks to interfere with your ambitions, your career, your choices, the way you practice your sexuality. Your worldview, the way you spend your money, you're like, no, 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 I want this Jesus. This Jesus is good. But King Jesus, excuse me, not for me. Jesus never came to stay a baby in a manger. Jesus came to be a king, a glorious, majestic, worthy king, to be worshiped to be adored, to be followed, to be submitted to, to be surrendered. Not because he's an angry, mean, power-hungry king, but because he is a king who is worthy of that. And he is a king who deserves that. And when we have that view of Jesus as that king that perspective for you and for me is the best thing that is possible for us. And so the good king, the loving king, wants us not to fight him, but to submit to him and surrender to him and to serve him and to listen to him. Jesus never came to remain a baby in a manger that we can control. Jesus came to be a king, to be worshiped, that we submit and surrender to. But Some of you don't want to do that, because some of us, all of us, to some degree, like to be the ones calling the shots. Herod saw Jesus as a threat, which raises the question for you and for me this morning, do we see Jesus as a threat to our life and power? This morning, is there an area in your life in which Jesus is asking you to submit to him? Is there an area? Is there a path? Is there something in your life where Jesus is saying, what are you doing? Trust me. Submit to me. Obey me. Follow me. And you're like, nope. I want to be king. I want to be in charge. I got this. You just kind of hang out down there. And if I need any more advice from you, I'll call you back in a few years. There's something that this morning God's been saying, submit to me, submit to me. And you're fighting the king. Because you want to keep in charge in that area. Although today's main focus was on Herod, there are two other groups who we've seen already who they also saw something when they saw Jesus. And we've already talked about one, but the next question is this. Okay, we, we talked about the king in the story. How did the religious leaders in that story see Jesus? How did those religious leaders, those, those pastors, if you will, they weren't really, but man, the people who the Jews looked up to, the priests, the leaders, well, We kind of saw the reaction earlier in verse 5. And remember, they were called to Herod to the temple. And Herod says this to them, hey, Jewish leaders, there's something in your culture and your religion that for centuries you've been waiting to happen. I've heard that that king actually may have been born. I've heard that the king that you've been waiting for, maybe that king's been born. Will you help me find out where he is? And so they hear this, and then this is what they did. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem. And then we don't read about them doing anything else. They've learned that possibly the king that they've been waiting for for centuries may have been born. And they walk into the temple or the palace. They give Herod a piece of information. And then they're kind of like, ooh, it's been a long day. think I'll go home and play me some Fortnite. We moved up here in 2013. When we moved up here, there was no Chick-fil-A in Connecticut. No offense, but I thought that was a sign that we were definitely going to the land of wickedness and vileness and sin, right? God's curse must be on the region. So we moved up here, and then... A few months after we moved up, the Lord blessed us, and he he favored our obedience, and there was a Chick-fil-A that opened up in Wallingford, Connecticut, Ah, right? Now, I don't know if you know where Wallingford, Connecticut is, but it's not like Trumbletown Center, okay? There's a Chick-fil-A that opened up in Wallingford, Connecticut, and my family and I, we are lunatics. So for the past eight and a half years, we have several times a week, well, not really, but definitely a month. Gotten into our car, it is 26.2 miles to get to Wallingford, Connecticut. We drive one way, 26.2 miles to get to Wallingford, Connecticut, 26.2 miles back to eat a stupid chicken sandwich with some pickles and some sauce, okay? but it actually is a really good chicken sandwich with some pickles and some sauce. We drive 26.2 miles to eat a chicken sandwich. These religious leaders had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for the king to come. They hear that the king may have been born. They cannot go five or six miles down the road to Bethlehem to see if it actually was true. I drive 26.2 miles for a piece of fried chicken one way. People who had been waiting for a king to rescue them couldn't go five miles down the road to maybe see if what they'd been hoping for actually had come on the scene. They knew all about Jesus and the prophecies. If Herod had grilled them on that day about Jesus and the prophecies, they already quoted from Micah, they would have rolled off their tongue. Well, Isaiah says this, Micah says this, Jeremiah's got this, then there's that, then there's proto-evangelism. They would have known it all. But then when there was something to act upon the knowledge, they're like, oof, long day. And here's how they saw Jesus. In this moment... They saw him as unimportant and missable. Unimportant and missable. Many of us might know all about Jesus. You didn't need me to get up here and tell you this part of the Christmas story. You could recite it. You could have put on a bathrobe, and you could have acted it out. But the question is, even though we know all about it, when we think about whether to put into action what we know, when we think about... Would they take further steps to learn more about Jesus and get closer to Jesus? Do we have the same perspective with those religious leaders that Jesus is unimportant and missable? They never would have said that. They never would have said that. You know what they would have said? Oh, Messiah is the most important thing ever. Like the Messiah, they would, have, they would never have said he's missable and unimportant. They would have said, no way, critical but their actions showed unimportant and missable. And there's one more group, a group who aren't Jewish, a group of astrologers who are chasing a different worldview, whose reality is invaded by truth. And how do they act? How do they see Jesus? Verse 11 tells us what these astrologers does. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother and they fell down, and they worshiped him. The wise men had a perspective of Jesus, and they saw him as worthy of worship, which, if you've been tracking with the sermon, raises the question for you and for me, do you see Jesus as worthy of worship? Do you see Jesus as worthy of worship? Three different characters who saw Jesus in three very different ways. And I just kind of want to wind down our time together with two boxes of questions, okay? Two different boxes of questions. Here's kind of the first box. We've seen three different views of Jesus, three different ways people saw Jesus. And Herod saw him as a threat to his life and power. The religious leaders saw Jesus as unimportant and missable. The wise men saw Jesus as worthy of worship. And if you had to fill in this blank, I see Jesus as blank, Right? What would you write? I see Jesus as a blank. I see him as a threat to my life and power. Would that be what you write? Peter, actually, man, I can relate to what you said because I want control. And I don't want to surrender. on fighting Jesus. I see Jesus as a threat to my life and power, at least a threat in this area, where she's asking me to give something up or get going with something or do or don't do. I feel that's a threat. Or would you say, I would never tell anybody this. Peter, I'm not going to stand up in church right now if you pass a mic around and say this to anybody, but to be honest, I kind of see him as unimportant and missable. Or would you say, Peter, I fill that in. I I see Jesus like the the astrologers, the wise men is worthy of worship. How would you fill in that line? Which one of these perspectives would you put in that line? Just think about it for a second. And now let me ask you a different set of questions. For those who said, I'm like the wise man, Peter, I'm not perfect, but I see Jesus worthy of worship, let me ask you another question. If we were to look at certain things about your life, would they show us the same answer? If we were to look, and you can pop the slide up here, at your calendar, your decisions, how you spend your money, what you prioritize, how you spent your time, what you said yes to, what you did or did not do, would that reveal someone who sees Jesus worthy of worship? What, what do you, what does your calendar show? This past month, what have you busied yourself with? And how many of the things have you busied yourself with <clears throat> that advance and further and are about the kingdom of God? What would your calendar show about how you see Jesus? Your decisions what decisions have you made? What decisions are you on the verge of making or you lean towards? And do those decisions show somebody that's trying to maintain the power of themselves, that's trying to pursue their own desires, that's not willing to yield in an area in which Jesus says surrender? Or do your decisions show an imperfect yet dependent heart trying to submit and serve and surrender to what King Jesus is asking you to do? It's Christmas. Let's just get really personal. What would your Venmo account show? What would your credit card account show? What would your Bank of America app show about how you spend your money? Listen, <clears throat> God has always provided for Calvary Church. There has not been a year in 137 years or however old we've been that I know of that we haven't paid the light bills. Unless we build a no like ski slope out back with a fake snow machine. Unless we do that. Or there's some catastrophe in two and a half weeks at our building. but Man, we're going to finish the year with excess. We're going to finish the year in the black. That's a blessing. This is not a giving sermon. Okay? Do you hear me say that? This is not a giving sermon. God has worked through many of you to faithfully provide for the church. We're good as a church, right? So, So this isn't to try to get you to give more. It's not a giving sermon. This is a discipleship sermon. And I promise you. If you want to know really how you would have filled in that line, then, man, look at your Venmo account, look at your Bank of America app, because the way that we spend the money shows the priorities of our hearts. And do we use our resources to further the kingdom of us? Or do we use our resources to further the kingdom of Jesus? We, do, we want you to use your resources to, to further God's work here, because that is stretch, will stretch your faith. Because that will be, for many of you, if you have an attitude like me, I'm just telling you, I've said it before, money is an idol for me. It gives me a fake security that I can control my life. And when I have the privilege of releasing my grip on it and saying, God, you have been so incredibly faithful to me. There has never been a week that I haven't been able to pay my light bill. I will trust you, and I will try as faithfully as I can to use my money in a way that aligns with what you say in Scripture, man, that grows me, and that stretches me, and that is a way that I am able to worship God and show His worth and show how He's been so faithful to providing for me. How you spend your money shows how you would fill in that line. What did you prioritize? Are you prioritizing you <clears throat> Are you prioritizing him? What would you say yes to? What would you say no to? So you see, these things, these show us what's really on the line. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up 10 days before Christmas. I'm calling you and inviting you and putting before you an opportunity for us men to look at our hearts and say, we have a chance to worship the King of Kings. And we have a chance to be part of that story. And I don't want the busyness of our lives or the craziness of our culture to put static in front of us and distract us from this blip of a moment that we have on the earth. And let's not waste it chasing things that don't matter. Let's not waste it seeing King Jesus as an enemy to be run from. and Let's not waste it seeing him as something missable that we can be apathetic towards. Let's spend it seeing Him as He is for who He is with a lifelong opportunity to worship Him as well as we can dependent upon the Spirit. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here as we move to our last song. You know, it's interesting. That song we sang before, He is worthy, He is worthy, right? Is He worthy? That comes right out of Revelation 5. I don't know if you've ever read Revelation 5, but back of the book. And there's this moment where there's there's this guy who's seeing this vision of heaven, and there's these, these beings in heaven that are troubled because they're looking around, and they're saying, is anybody worthy to fix this mess? Is anybody worthy to fix this mess and bring the story to a good end? And so then these angels look at Jesus. They see him there, right? Standing there, I see a lamb standing near the throne. Not a baby in a manger, not a king on a cross, but a risen victorious lamb who paid it all. And then in worship that's going on now, they start to say these words, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then they continue and they say, right, all these angelic creatures then say this, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever ever, because he's worthy of this, not a baby in a manger, but a king who adores you and who asks you not to fight him, but to surrender to him. And so I'm going to invite us to do one thing this week. I don't know if you grabbed the things with the promises or took a picture. I don't know if any of you uh, had the opportunity to work through these promises, But, but here's another opportunity. I want you to pick one day this week one day this week, then on that one day, I would like you to pick one way that you could personally spend some time worshiping Jesus. If you're like, dude, I can't do that. I'm so busy. I got to get there and get there. No, you can do it. Your target pickup order can wait for 15 minutes, right? It's probably not even in Target. It's stuck off LA somewhere on a boat, so you'll be okay. (laughs) One day this week, and on that one day, can you carve out a few hours to Spend some time, a few minutes, personally worshiping Jesus in one way. Maybe what you do, right? Jesus is the creator. I know we, we, I don't know if you know that, but the Bible says that it was through him and for him and by him that all things were created. Maybe what you do, it's going to be a warmer week. You throw on a Patagonia, you go for a hike, and as you're walking, you look at creation and you spend some time just. Praying to Jesus and saying, man, thank you for being the magnificent creator. Maybe you don't want to go for a walk. Maybe you make spend some time making a list of attributes. of Everything that comes to mind about Jesus, and then you just pray through those and thank those. Maybe you write down a list of all the ways that Jesus has been so faithful to you this past year. So kind to you and benevolent to you and gracious to you and sustained you and was with you and was present for you. And you make a list of all those things And then you just offer a prayer of gratitude to him. Maybe what you do is you find 15 minutes and you just listen to some worship songs. And let them speak to your heart and worship Jesus. But Jesus is not a baby to remain in the manger. He's a king to be worshiped. And would you be willing this week, one day in one way, to worship Jesus with us? Let me pray. And then we're going to sing. And we're going to celebrate who he is and his goodness and his worth, and we're going to adore him. So I'm going to invite you to stand up, I'll pray, and then we'll move into this last song together. Father. Thank you for these realities and thank you for these truths. Thank you that right now Jesus is receiving praise and honor and glory from angels who are in heaven. As, as we come to end our service, Father, I pray that our song now will affirm what he did for us and be a chance for us as a community to worship Jesus even in our time together now for who he is and for what he's done. Amen.